Section twenty nine of Gray's Anatomy, Part five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anatomy of the Human Body, Part five by Henry Gray. The Kidneys, Part two. Minute Anatomy. The renal tubules, of which the kidney is for the most part made up, commence in the cortical substance, and after pursuing a very circuitous course through the cortical and medullary substances, finally end up at the apices of the renal pyramids by open mouths, so that the fluid which they contain is emptied through the calluses into the pelvis of the kidney. If the surface of one of the papillae be examined with a lens, it will be seen to be studded over with minute openings, the orifices of the renal tubules, from sixteen to twenty in number, and if pressure be made on a fresh kidney, urine will be seen to exude from these orifices. The tubules commence in the convoluted part and renal columns as the renal corpuscles, which are small, rounded masses of a deep red color, varying in size, but of an average of about 0.2 millimeters in diameter. Each of these little bodies is composed of two parts, a central glomerulus of vessels and a membranous envelope, the glomerular capsule, capsule of Bowman, which is the small, pouch-like commencement of a renal tubule. The glomerulus is a lobulated network of convoluted capillary blood vessels, held together by scanty connective tissue. This capillary network is derived from a small arterial twig, the afferent vessel, which enters the capsule, generally at a point opposite to that at which the latter is connected with the tubule, and the resulting vein, the efferent vessel, emerges from the capsule at the same point. The afferent vessel is usually the larger of the two. The glomerular, or Bowman's capsule, which surrounds the glomerulus, consists of a basement membrane, lined on its inner surface by a layer of flattened epithelial cells, which are reflected from the lining membrane onto the glomerulus, at the point of entrance or exit of the afferent and efferent vessels. The whole surface of the glomerulus is covered with a continuous layer of the same cells, on a delicate supporting membrane. Thus, between the glomerulus and the capsule, a space is left, forming a cavity lined by a continuous layer of squamous cells. This cavity varies in size according to the state of secretion and the amount of fluid present in it. In the fetus and young subject, the lining epithelial cells are polyhedral or even columnar. The renal tubules, commencing in the renal corpuscles, present during their course many changes in shape and direction, and are contained partly in the medullary and partly in the cortical substance. At their junction with the glomerular capsule, they exhibit a somewhat constricted portion, which is termed the neck. Beyond this, the tubule becomes convoluted, and pursues a considerable course in the cortical substance, constituting the proximal convoluted tube. After a time, the convolutions disappear and the tube approaches the medullary substance in a more or less spiral manner. This section of the tubule has been called the spiral tube. Throughout this portion of their course, the renal tubules are contained entirely in the cortical substance, and present a fairly uniform caliber. They now enter the medullary substance, suddenly become much smaller, quite straight in direction, and dip down for a variable depth into the pyramids, constituting the descending limb of Henley's loop. Bending on themselves, they form what is termed the loop of Henley, and reascending, they become suddenly enlarged, forming the ascending limb of Henley's loop, and re-enter the cortical substance. 
This portion of the tubule ascends for a short distance, when it again becomes dilated, irregular, and angular. This section is termed the zigzag tubule. It ends in a convoluted tube, which resembles the proximal convoluted tubule, and is called the distal convoluted tubule. This again terminates in a narrow junctional tube, which enters the straight or collecting tube. The straight or collecting tubes commence in the radiate part of the cortex, where they receive the curved ends of the distal convoluted tubules. They unite at short intervals with one another, the resulting tubes presenting a considerable increase in caliber, so that a series of comparatively large tubes passes from the bases of the rays into the renal pyramids. In the medulla, the tubes of each pyramid converge to join a central tube, duct of Bellini, which finally opens on the summit of one of the papillae. The contents of the tube are therefore discharged into one of the calluses. Structure of the renal tubules The renal tubules consist of a basement membrane lined with epithelium. The epithelium varies considerably in different sections of the tubule. In the neck, the epithelium is continuous with that lining the glomerular capsule, and like it consists of flattened cells, each containing an oval nucleus. The two convoluted tubules, the spiral and zigzag tubules, and the ascending limb of Henley's loop, are lined by a type of epithelium which is histologically the same in all. The cells are somewhat columnar in shape and dovetail into one another of their lateral aspect. Each has a striated border near the lumen of the tube. Its inner part is granular and its outer portion vertically striated. The nucleus is spherical and situated about the center of the cell. In the descending limb of Henley's loop, the epithelium resembles that found in the glomerular capsule, and the commencement of the tube, consisting of flat, clear epithelial plates, each with an oval nucleus. The nuclei alternate on opposite sides of the tubule, so that the lumen remains fairly constant. In the straight tube, the epithelium is clear and cubical. In its papillary portion, the cells are distinctly columnar and transparent. The Renal Blood Vessels the kidney is plentifully supplied with blood by the renal artery, a large branch of the abdominal aorta. Before it enters the kidney, each artery divides into four or five branches, which at the hilum lie mainly between the renal vein and ureter, the vein being in front, the ureter behind. One branch usually lies behind the ureter. Each vessel gives off some small branches to the suprarenal glands, to the ureter, and to the surrounding cellular tissue and muscles. Frequently, a second renal artery, termed the inferior renal, is given off from the abdominal aorta at a lower level, and supplies the lower portion of the kidney, while occasionally an additional artery enters the upper part of the kidney. The branches of the renal artery, while in the sinus, give off a few twigs for the nutrition of the surrounding tissues, and end in the arteriae propriae renales, which enter the kidney proper in the renal columns. Two of these pass to each renal pyramid and run along its sides for its entire length, giving off in their course the afferent vessels of the renal corpuscles in the renal columns. Having arrived at the bases of the pyramids, they form arterial arches or arcades which lie in the boundary zone between the bases of the pyramids and the cortical arches, and break up into two distinct sets of branches devoted to the supply of the remaining portions of the kidney. The first set, the interlobular arteries, are given off at right angles from the side of the arterial arcade looking toward the cortical substance, and pass directly outward between the medullary rays to reach the fibrous tunic, 
where they end in the capillary network of this part. These vessels do not anastomose with each other, but form what are called end arteries. In their outward course they give off lateral branches. These are the afferent vessels for the renal corpuscles. They enter the capsule and end in the glomerulus. From each tuft the corresponding efferent vessel arises, and having made its egress from the capsule, near to the point where the afferent vessel enters, breaks up into a number of branches, which form a dense plexus around the adjacent urinary tubes. The second set of branches from the arterial arcades supply the renal pyramids, which they enter at their bases, and passing straight through their substance to their apices, terminate in the venous plexuses found in that situation. They are called the arteriae recti. The efferent vessels from the glomeruli nearest the medulla break up into leashes of straight vessels, false arteriae recti, which pass down into the medulla and join the plexus of vessels there. The renal veins arise from three sources, namely, the veins beneath the fibrous tunic, the plexuses around the convoluted tubules in the cortex, and the plexuses situated at the apices of the renal pyramids. The veins beneath the fibrous tunic, veni stellati, are stellate in arrangement, and are derived from the capillary network, into which the terminal branches of the interlobular arteries break up. These join to form the interlobular veins, which pass inward between the rays, receive branches from the plexuses around the convoluted tubules, and having arrived at the bases of the renal pyramids, join with the veni recti, next to be described. The veni recti are branches from the plexuses at the apices of the medullary pyramids, formed by the terminations of the arteriae recti. They run outward in a straight course between the tubes of the medullary substance, and joining, as above stated, the interlobular veins, form venous arcades. These in turn unite and form veins, which pass along the sides of the pyramids. These vessels, veni proprii renales, accompany the arteries of the same name, running along the entire length of the sides of the pyramids, and quit the kidney substance to enter the sinus. In this cavity they join the corresponding veins from the other pyramids to form the renal vein, which emerges from the kidney at the hilum and opens into the inferior vena cava. The left vein is longer than the right and crosses in front of the abdominal aorta. The lymphatics of the kidney are described on page 712. Nerves of the kidney the nerves of the kidney, although small, are about fifteen in number. They have small ganglia developed upon them, and are derived from the renal plexus, which is formed by branches from the celiac plexus, the lower and outer part of the celiac ganglion and aortic plexus, and from the lesser and lowest splanchnic nerves. They communicate with the spermatic plexus, a circumstance which may explain the occurrence of pain in the testes in affections of the kidney. They accompany the renal artery and its branches, and are distributed to the blood vessels and to the cells of the urinary tubules. Connective Tissue Intertubular Stroma Although the tubules and vessels are closely packed, a small amount of connective tissue, continuous with the fibrous tunic, binds them firmly together and supports the blood vessels, lymphatics, and nerves. Variations Malformations of the kidney are not uncommon. There may be an entire absence of one kidney, but according to Morris, the number of these cases is excessively small. Or there may be congenital atrophy of one kidney, when the kidney is very small, but usually healthy in structure. These cases are of great importance, and must be duly taken into account 
when nephrectomy is contemplated. A more common malformation is where the two kidneys are fused together. They may be joined together only at their lower ends by means of a thick mass of renal tissue, so as to form a horseshoe-shaped body, or they may be completely united, forming a disc-like kidney, from which two ureters descend into the bladder. These fused kidneys are generally situated in the middle line of the abdomen, but may be displaced as well. In some mammals, for example ox and bear, the kidney consists of a number of distinct lobules. This lobulated condition is characteristic of the kidney of the human fetus, and traces of it may persist in the adult. Sometimes the pelvis is duplicated, while a double ureter is not uncommon. In some rare instances, a third kidney may be present. One or both kidneys may be misplaced as a congenital condition, and remain fixed in this abnormal position. They are then very often misshapen. They may be situated higher, though this is very uncommon, or lower than normal, or removed farther from the vertebral column than usual. Or they may be displaced into the iliac fossa, over the sacroiliac joint, onto the promontory of the sacrum, or into the pelvis between the rectum and bladder, or by the side of the uterus. In these latter cases they may give rise to very serious trouble. The kidney may also be misplaced as a congenital condition, but may not be fixed. It is then known as a floating kidney. It is believed to be due to the fact that the kidney is completely enveloped by peritoneum, which then passes backward into the vertebral column as a double layer, forming a mesonephron which permits movement. The kidney may also be misplaced as an acquired condition. In these cases the kidney is mobile in the tissues by which it is surrounded, moving with the capsule in the paranephric tissues. This condition is known as movable kidney, and is more common in the female than in the male. It occurs in badly nourished people, or in those who have become emaciated from any cause. It must not be confounded with the floating kidney, which is a congenital condition due to the development of a mesonephron. The two conditions cannot, however, be distinguished until the abdomen is opened or the kidney explored from the loin. End of section 29